0: here from Sacramento, I learned very quickly that getting and giving directions operated very differently. In Sacramento, if I needed to know how to get somewhere and I wasn't using GPS, more often it was, you know, go down to this street, turn left, you go to the next street, you'll turn right, and I'm about the third house down on the left, pretty easy to find. Up here, it's Go for about three miles, find the funny-looking rock, turn right, go down another few miles, find that crazy tree, turn left, go about another hundred yards, and I'm the driveway on the left, and you got to go about a mile down that thing, and I'm the, you know, whatever house to the right. You have to remember all the landmarks across the way rather than just, you know, specific streets. Uh, my house is very similar, actually. Once we moved down here, I discovered that it was very easily missed, especially in the dark. First moving here, I drove by it about three different times before I actually could remember where it was. Um, and the landmark for us is a forty mile per hour sign that is placed just on the opposite side of our driveway. So whenever we tell somebody, we're like, "Look for that sign. You can turn, and that's uh, that's where we're at." Or even up here, when you go on hikes, we have landmarks and things to remind us where we're going. When you arrive at a at a trail at the trailhead, oftentimes there's a map there that you can look, can figure out where you're going, find the landmarks across there, a river, a bridge, or something like that. And as you hike, sometimes they've actually placed like markers on the trail so you know where you're going. Sometimes those little wood posts that can say this trail goes this way or that trail goes that way. Or maybe you cross that stream or you pass that bridge that was on the the trail map, so you know where you're going. And you can have those weird feelings where you're like, ooh, I feel like I should have gotten to this point already. Have I hit it yet? I'm not sure. But when you see that mark, you're like, okay, I'm on the right path. I know where I'm going. I can keep going to get to the end. But imagine for a second if you were giving directions to somebody to get to your house and you said, hey, that rock, turn right at that rock and whatever the next steps are. And as they're coming to your house, they get to the rock and they stop. This is a nice rock. I like this rock. I think I'll stay here instead. Was that the point of what you wanted them to do? Well, you wanted them to get to your house, not stay at the rock. Or if you were on a trail and you walked through, you saw the trail map and you started walking and you got to one of those first markers and you said, this is a nice wood post i like this post i think i'll stay here is that the point of going on the hike no you want to get to the end you want to get to the destination you want to see what's ahead you want to see where the trail goes they're reminders of where you're going they're not necessarily the point of the journey I'm going to ask you a question now to have you think about it a little bit, and then I'll re-ask it of you again at the end of the message. But it is basically this. What signs have there been in your life that you hold on to to remind you that God is at work? When has God worked in your life? What trail markers are those for you that you can look back on to remind you that you're on the right path, or that God is moving you through as we've read through the book of John, we've seen this, we've seen signs, he's pointed them out for us, but it almost seems like he doesn't let us stay in those moments. He's always pushing us on to the next thing, and then it says, and immediately, or then the next day. He doesn't want us to sit there for too long, he wants us to go on to see what's next and move us on to something else, because John knows that there is a greater story to tell. There's something else going on than just the signs and the miracles and the wonders that we're seeing Jesus perform. And in that is basically the the point of the message that I would like for you to walk home with today, and that's we follow Jesus not because of what he gives us, but we follow him in faith knowing that he will sustain us to our destination. We follow Jesus not just because of what he gives us, but in faith knowing that he will sustain us through to our destination. So our passage that we're going to look at today begins in John chapter 6. I'm going to start with walking us through verses 1 through 4, and we'll go through the rest of it as we move through the message. So in verse 1, it says, Sometime after this, see, John's just moving this along. Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. In these short sentences, in this introduction, John is directing directing us in what we should be thinking about. He's giving us context, like an introduction to a good book, or a movie. He's trying to give us markers and signs to remind us that we've been on the right track. Here's some things you need to look out for as we keep moving ahead. First of all, it says, A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. This crowd was coming to Jesus because of all the signs and wonders that he had done. Last week we talked about him healing the man by the pool of Bethesda. They can see, this crowd sees what Jesus is capable of, and they're curious. They want to see more, they want to know more. Some probably have other intentions. It tells us that Jesus went up, a mount- up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. As you go back through the pages of Scripture, there's all sorts of important mountains Mount Carmel, where Elijah meets God. Mount Horeb, where Elijah meets God. Mount Carmel, where he has the interaction with the prophets Baal. Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel, after they're coming out of Egypt, meet God and get the Ten Commandments and become his people. The temple in Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. Mounts become these places where you meet God and you have interactions with him. And then John closes with this section by saying the Jewish Passover festival was near. Last time I preached, talked about clearing of the temple. John also noted in that section that the Passover festival was near. In the Gospel of John, Passover will come up three times. One time at the clearing of the temple, one time here, and then finally at the end as Jesus is being crucified. So this festival is important for John. Last time, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the festival. He's in the temple, it's Passover time, he's there. Here, he's not in Jerusalem. He's on a different mountain. And crowds are coming to him. What was significant about Passover? If you remember from the last time I preached, Passover was this pilgrimage festival where people were encouraged to go to Jerusalem, to sacrifice, to worship, and to celebrate the meal. Yet, here we are, away from Jerusalem, at a different mountain, somewhere near Galilee, but Jesus is there, and the people are coming to see him on this mountain, and they're not going to Jerusalem. Passover recalls and reminds the people of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, They had to sacrifice the lamb and paint the blood over the doorpost so that their house would be protected from the plague of the firstborn and they would not be affected by that and that the angel of the Lord was going to pass over their houses. It was deliverance amidst extreme suffering. It was deliverance that happened around a meager, quickly eaten meal. If you read back about the Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12, it says, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Eat it in haste because you're going to be moving. You're going to be getting out of here. And we've had signs of God's power through the plagues of Egypt. And this is the last one that gets them out. And after Passover, they would eventually arrive again at Mount Sinai. In these four verses, it's like John is reminding us of the trail map that has come before. Here's these markers in the Old Testament. Here's these markers that we've already talked about in my gospel. Here's what you need to be reminded of to see what Jesus is doing here. And Remember that we follow Jesus not just because of what he gives us. So we go on to this miracle that happens as the people and the crowds come to Jesus and the disciples on this mountain. Continuing in verse 5, When Jesus looked up, he saw this great crowd coming towards him, and he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish, but how far will it go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I love summer camp. I've been to kids camp and Hume Lake more times than I can count both as camper and a counselor. And as a counselor, I had a few trials with kids. Some tests, if you will. I had one homesick kid who wanted to call home to talk to his mom every day at kids' camp. I had a kid who had peanut allergies and did not care. I had a kid one time get frustrated With another kid in a cabin and thinking he was making a better decision than hitting the other kid, chose to hit his bunk instead, proceeding to break bones in his knuckles, which required a trip me to drive him down to the hospital that was closest. One time I had a group of kids in my cabin who was not from my church, but they were just coming to camp that week and wanted to participate and one very specific night they were being loud and not going to bed, they were keeping the rest of us up we were trying to, hey, be quiet, be quiet and one time when I said, hey guys, like it's really late, can we just be quiet so we can go to bed one of them chose to respond to me with an off color word I did not pass the test very well in that situation, I have to say, at two in the morning but It is these moments of trial and test when we realize we can't rely on ourselves all the time. We have to rely on a power that is outside of us to fill us, to give us whatever it is we need for that moment or to work in us even at our weakest. In this story, the feeding of the 5,000, which comes up in every gospel, it's set up as a test. Jesus asked Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? But it says he knew what he intended to do for the whole time. The disciples respond, of course, just by seeing what's around them. How can we do this? There's not enough food here. It would take half a year's wages. These five barley loaves and two fish that this kid has can't feed everybody. The problem seems insurmountable, similar to the wedding feast that happened earlier in John when the wine ran out. How are we going to get more wine? What are we going to do? How is this going to happen? Same kind of situation. When Jesus hears the disciples not plans to feed everybody there, he says, have the people sit down. Class is in session, if you will, as to how this is going to work. Jesus takes the initiative like he did at the wedding of Cana, takes charge of the situation and starts telling people what to do. And it says he took the loaves that the child had had, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. Jesus took what was available and gave thanks. The Greek word behind giving thanks is eucharisto. You may have heard the word eucharist, which is a fancy word for saying the Lord's Supper, what we celebrated last week. Jesus is operating like a great host here. This great crowd has come, and when people come to your house as a host, you can't say, sorry, friends, we don't have enough food. You have to leave. No, Jesus gives them what they need. He is the great host who is able to feed everybody on a mountain near the Passover festival. Everyone was able to eat all that they needed. When they had had enough to eat, it says, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Each disciple had a basket. There were 12 baskets. and each of the lef- And the leftovers filled each of those baskets, it said. All that was left over by everyone who had eaten. Like a good host, everyone gets enough to eat so much that there are leftovers. Like at the wedding feast, where there was way more wine that was needed in the situation there is an overabundance of food here that Jesus is providing for those who are coming to him 12 baskets one for each disciple one symbolizing each tribe in Israel symbolizing within the crowd of those who approached Jesus on the mountain near the Passover that this is how God is working This is God's people. This is what the redeemed and restored people of God is going to look like. This is where your deliverance comes from. Of Jesus as the true deliverer that has been pointed to all along through the Old Testament and in the first few pages of the New Testament. The crowd see the sign. They acknowledge the miracle. We've been fed We've had more than enough to eat. Surely, Jesus, this guy's a prophet. Let's make him king. That sounds great. People can often identify Jesus accurately, but actually miss out on what he's trying to do, what he's calling us into, and what he wants to do in each and every one of our lives. I think these people desiring to make Jesus king just want to get from Jesus what they want. I want more food. I want to get rid of the Romans. I want something else. And Jesus looks like he can provide it. But I want it. Jesus doesn't want any of that. As John has said before, Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of man and he wants nothing to do with it. Because when we want to put Jesus up as our own king, we want to put him up on our own throne. We want to get from him What we want, follow our own agendas, Jesus. But Jesus isn't having any of that because he has only come for his own purposes and to do the will of the Father. Maybe true faith in Jesus then isn't just about following the crowd. It's not about seeing where everyone else is going, following the bread, the provision, focusing on the signs, sitting at that one trail marker, if you will, saying, this is great, I don't want to go any further Maybe there's something else to following Jesus. Something else that the next miracle helps us understand. So after he feeds the 5,000, Jesus escapes to a mountain and the disciples decide they're going to go off on a boat to the other side of the lake. Starting in verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. There's been very few times in my life where I've kind of felt like my life was like in danger. Um, oddly most of these have happened in and around water
1: I talked about a scuba diving
0: uh, time a couple times ago that I preached Um, other times have happened I was body surfing one time in Santa Cruz and I got knocked and rolled by a wave and I hit that moment where I had rolled and like I don't know which way is up am I going to be able to get out of here and there's that interesting like fear sets in of like this might be it I don't know Found the top, still here. For our 10-year anniversary, we went to Hawaii, and we decided to go boogie boarding. That sounds fun. Let's do that. So we found this beach that was recommended by some locals. Hey, let's go there. Yeah, it's great waves. It's awesome. The second I got in the water and started boogie boarding, I could feel the power of the waves and thought, "Mm mm-mm, this is too much for me. I can't do this. Those waves were beyond my boogie boarding capabilities which are very limited so I did not want to play that game the disciples are in kind of a similar situation as they're in the boat darkness has set in they're rowing there's a storm they're kind of trying to get through the storm with all of their strength but they can't quite do it They've witnessed multiple miracles. They've been with Jesus. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal people. And he has led and spoken with authority. And now that he's not with them, they're in the boat, freaking out. They don't know what to do because Jesus isn't physically present. If this is another test, this is like a pop quiz. They weren't ready for this one. John says it was dark. Darkness has already been established as an image of John. Go back to John chapter 1 where he talks about who Jesus is as the word. And he says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Disciples find themselves in the situation where they're unable to get out of their power alone. They're dark in the dark. They're scared What are they going to do? They've rode for three or four miles. Like I said, I've been to summer camp, been to Hume Lake. I've rode across that lake, out and back. That's like two miles. And that was hard. And here they are, rowing three to four miles, alone and in the dark. They're scared, and all of a sudden they see something out across the lake coming towards them. And they're afraid of what it is, what's approaching them. What's this thing that's coming out across the lake? We don't know what to do. Keep rowing, keep rowing. Faster, faster, get away from it. Then the words of Jesus come out and cut across the storm and the wind and the waves. And he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Words that echo what God has said in the Old Testament. Words that echo what angels, messengers of God have said to God's people as they've come down to deliver a message of hope to his people. And when Jesus shows up and they realize it's him, they invite him into the boat. Things calm down and John makes this note that they were suddenly at their destination. It feels weird, like Star Trek transport. When Jesus gets in the boat, they suddenly arrive where they were intending to go not sure that's exactly what happened, but Jesus gets them where they were intending to go. He gets them to their destination. Where we're at now, we're in a very similar space that the disciples were in. We can feel like things are dark. We can feel like we're rowing and rowing and rowing and nothing is changing and we're not getting anywhere. Why are we following Jesus? Where is Jesus anyway? He's supposed to be here, right? Like he's supposed to be helping us out. Why is he not here? We're straining at the oars of our life, wondering if we're making any difference. But in the end, it's our hope that as Jesus has held true in the past, as God has held true in the past, that we will see Jesus again. That he will come down and declare to each and every one of us, It is I. Don't be afraid. That Jesus doesn't just give us what we want, but that he sustains us through to our destination like he did with his disciples. The conclusion of this passage is a little bit odd. I almost think of it like one of those old Benny Hill shows where they play the crazy music and people like are coming in and out of doors and going back and forth. You know, whatever. We don't know what's going on. Verses 22 through 24 conclude this way. It says, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite of the shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberius landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Where's Jesus? We gotta find him again. Where is he at? What's going on? We can be just like the crowd in the end, searching, 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 wondering. What's happening? Where can we find Jesus? We don't have anything to hold on to. But John makes this interesting note about the place where Jesus fed the 5,000. He calls it near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. There's that Eucharisto word again. There's a mile marker now in that place of where they've been, where God had worked, what had happened in the past, and what's going on to remind them, encourage them as they move on down the road that God is encouraging them on as they follow Jesus. What's important? Where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. Last week when we celebrated communion, that is our regular reminder of how God is at work in our lives, how God is going to show up, or we're pleading for God to show up in the future because we know he has provided for us in the past. It's one of those landmarks of faith that keep us moving forward, keep us on the path. It's a meager meal, a cracker, and some grape juice in a little cup, or a dip of bread in the juice. That's not going to sustain our body, but it's what sustains our spirit. It's what God encourages us and enlivens us with to take those next steps steps of faith it's the sign that will get us to our destination it's the marker pointing us further down the road like i said we follow jesus not because of what he gives us but we follow him in faith that he will sustain sustain us to our destination so i ask you again at the conclusion of this message what are those signposts for you what are the markers in your life where God has shown up that you look back on and say, yeah, God provided back then. I'm going to keep going to the next marker. Where has God kept you moving when things are dark, when the seas are rough, and you're not sure where to go? Hold on to those moments. Remember that. Know that God has sustained you then. and He will sustain you. All right, let's continue in worship. I'm standing at your door. My heart is calling yours. Come Chase you down. I dare you to believe how much I love you now. Don't pray. I am your strength. Will be.